I think the more people's stories you study, the more you see there's always a period of time where unless you dig, it's not obvious that a person was like working on their craft. But if you know the story well, you see that like anything that looks like an overnight success was not. Welcome to episode 12 of the Idea Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Cho. So in becoming more active on X in the back half of 2023, I have been crossing paths with a lot more young, ambitious people with overlapping interests that are trying to carve their own lane for themselves career-wise. And a question that I frequently find myself asking when having conversations with these types of people is, have you read the book, The Almanac of Naval Ravikant? If you have read the book, it's probably obvious why I asked the question. If I were to rank order books on the number of insights per page, this book, The Almanac of Naval Ravikant, would easily be in the top percentile. It is incredibly concise, it's easy to read, and it contains insights that are both highly applicable to your personal life and also to one's career. My guest today is Eric Jorgensen, the author of The Almanac of Naval Ravikant, which just recently crossed a million books sold. And more recently, he is the author of The Anthology of Balaji, a summary of the technologist, entrepreneur, and investor Balaji Srinivasan's best insights. You know, typically when I record podcasts, I will do a bit of background research to sketch an outline of likely areas the conversation might go. And I do this to give myself a little bit of sanity going into the conversation because it's pretty intimidating to go into a discussion without any any footholds. But my favorite conversations are those where the topic and questions just naturally emerge from the flow of the discussion. And my chat with Eric was a beautiful example of this. We talk about Eric's lost years, the years before he published The Almanac of Nuwalt Ravikant, the differences in the process of writing the anthology of Balaji, the future of book publishing as he is now the CEO of Scribe Media, and a lot more. With that context, please enjoy my conversation with Eric Jorgensen. Sweet. So, Eric, uh, I actually, I probably owe um, a bit of thanks to Chase Ilton because it was probably maybe two years ago we had overlapped professionally and Chase was like, hey, if you're interested in meeting cool, curious people, you should definitely um, connect with Eric Jorgensen. And at the time I was like, man, I knew I knew of you and I knew that you had written the almanac of Naval Ravikant, which I was a big fan of. But it was like, what am I going to talk to this guy about? And two years later, this uh, conversation materialized. So appreciate you kind of jumping on for, for a fun conversation here. Of course, man. I owe a lot to Chase Hilton. He doesn't spend a lot of time on his public profile, but he is low-key one of the most kind and helpful people I have ever met. I'm an enormous, enormous fan of Chase Hilton. He's maybe responsible for more like close first degree connections than anybody else that I know. And I think everybody who's like gotten to work with him has felt lucky to lucky to do so. Um, and I've been following you for a while, dude. I like am excited to get to talk to you. There's not many people with like whose workouts look like an episode of Dragon Ball Z, like posting <laughs> on Twitter, flexing on everybody, doing handstand push-ups with like an oxygen mask on. You're a beast, dude. I appreciate it, man. I really do. Um, yeah, hopefully I'll be able to keep that up in 2024 and like 600 plus days on a gym streak, which has been um, a really valuable, like just like life rule that I've put in place. Um, so, so I appreciate it. 
That's incredible. I, I hold that ideal, like uh, Naval has a line about it that's, um, you know, health health first, L literally even like before your family, like your personal health comes first. And it's not a matter of selfishness. It's just a matter of like practicality of like, if you don't take care of your health, you can't take care of anything else in your life. And if you have even one health event, it doesn't take long to be like, oh my God, this is so like, I'm so dumb for sacrificing anything else for health. And like, it's so hard to remember day to day to actually hold that prioritization and like get to the gym every day and put the candy bar down. Uh, but like kudos to you for living it. Yeah. Every, like every person who lives that example and like shows their friends and family and followers that that's possible, I think is like a really useful and valuable thing. Like we should all be thinking about it all the time and prioritizing it more than we do. And so I, I, I look up to everybody who like has the wisdom to put their health first and really live it. Um, I think it's a good example for everybody. Yeah. There's, I try and write on a monthly basis. And one of the um, subject matters I have been meaning to write more and more about is um, just like this phenomenon of being um, either close to death in some experience uh, or just getting like extremely sick um, or like even athletically just getting injured for a period of time is like it kind of shakes you out of the world that you're in and whatever inertias that have kind of crept up on you over the years it's just like a, a big reality check and so I'm of the opinion now that like those things are really important to kind of like recenter your life and like figure out that the path that you're on is is a good long-term path. And I feel like yeah. a lot of people that don't have those shakeups early in life, they end up going down a path that they didn't originally intend on. And it's unfortunate because people can waste like their entire lives doing something that they ultimately realize they didn't want to do, you know? Yeah. We hear about it from early on, you know, like meditate on death or Steve Jobs is like commencement speech of like, you know, we're all going to die. You're already naked. There's no reason not to pursue. Like it's so you hear it so often you kind of forget until you have one of those experiences yourself and either, you know, someone close to you dies or you see someone close to you die or one of your peers, you know, has a tragic death or you have like a medical event. And like every one of those I've had in my life, I come out a little wiser and a lot more grateful and a little more, so it becomes a little more obvious the priorities that you should hold in life. And, and I set a higher standard for how I spend my time and how I, who I spend my time with and what I spend my time on. And, you know, it, we tend to re like repress those memories or try to avoid them. And like, it's so, there's so much wisdom in embracing them and letting it, yeah, let, letting the lesson sink in. Like it's useful. It's hard, but it's useful. Can I ask you how, at what age uh, were you when you published the book, uh, the first book, The Almanac of Nuval? 29 or 30, I think. Okay. When, uh, like in your twenties, because like from the outside looking in, it feels like that book kind of like put you on the map to some extent. Um, and maybe, maybe that wasn't the case beforehand, but like, was, what was the, the lead up? Because over the course of, I don't know, maybe the past five to 10 years, you have like both from that book, um, and also just from being active in the creator economy kind of become like an advocate or a voice in that space. And there's like that first 10 years of your career. And I'm just like, what, what, what was happening there? It's kind of the question. Yeah, it's a good question. Because I, th I think the more people's stories you study, the more you see, like there's all, I think uh, George Mack calls these like the lost years. Like there's always a period of time where unless you dig, it's not obvious that a person was like working on their craft. 
but if you know the story well, you see that like anything that looks like an overnight success was not like they had a decade of work in beforehand. So, I mean, my, my story, I'll start at the beginning and like you decide when it becomes relevant, but like was very lucky to grow up in an entrepreneurial house. Um, you know, like my, my grandfather started a business and ran it. My dad spent his life like running that business. You know, I had uncles with like pizzerias and local newspapers and like, I, so I was the kid like taking candy to school and like selling it out of my locker. You know, like it was my first business was like buying a box of airheads at Costco for two cents each and selling them out of my locker for 50 cents each. And then like getting paid to give kids rides to school in high school. And then in college, it was the era when kind of Facebook was breaking out and like young people were doing cool stuff in tech. And that was in the zeitgeist. And so I started, you know, blogging more and working on student business incubators and just like a bunch of like dumb college kid businesses. And I was importing t-shirts and um, building websites for local businesses and stuff like that, that like mm. had dubious credibility and like some made money and some lost money. But I was like learning valuable lessons. Like <laughs> the whole country of China shuts down for like two weeks around Chinese New Year that you didn't weren't aware of, but now you're going to miss your shipping deadlines and now you're going to violate your contract and now you better make a plan, right? Like just <laughs> stuff that, you know, a sophomore, you know, in Michigan doesn't know until <laughs> until it happens. And you're like, yep. oh, bumps and bruises along the way. And then I uh, just joined some hackathons in that era. I joined Twitter. So it was like 2008 or nine, joined Twitter when it was like a really like a local organizing thing like mm. very early on that and just like made some friends with the local business community in Lansing which is where I was going to college and met some adults and started following some people on Twitter and like Twitter led me to some hackathons and some hackathons led me to meeting um, some people at the Coffin Foundation and this guy at uh, the Coffin Foundation Bo Fishback was like hired me to uh, come be an intern there basically and I was super excited. This is such a cool place. This is like the biggest um, nonprofit in entrepreneurship. They give away like $100 million a year to support the startup ecosystem. They helped fund uh, AngelList. They helped fund Sarah Lacey. They do a ton of research. It's a really awesome organization out of Kansas City. And the first day at work, uh, Bo was like, welcome to Coffin. Uh, I'm going to go quit my job and start a company, like start a startup. Do you want to come or do you want to stay here? And so I was like, I'm here to work for you. Like I'm all in on you. Like, and I want to join a startup anyway. So let's go. Um, mm. So I actually never, I just sort of left before my last year of school and joined the startup, which started in Kansas city, but moved to San Francisco and just worked at the, in the Valley at this kind of venture back startup for ended up being 10 years. And along the way started like was tweeting, was blogging. Um, and my first, like, it's not obvious now, but the thing that I would say the first thing that like put me like on a map, quote unquote, the first thing that showed me that publishing quality stuff on the internet works, <laughs> like it was worth doing. It was this blog called Evergreen. And it was just, it was a really simple concept. It was like, I got an email list of 15 of my friends and said, Hey, send me the best thing you've ever seen about how to hire. And people would send me articles or videos or podcasts and I would like consume them all in the course of a week. And I would write a short summary on the key ideas and link back to the original stuff. And I'd send it back out. And like every week it got bigger and I would do a different topic every week. And it was just like my self-assessed MBA. And I just, I probably did 30 of them over the course of like two years. And it was a ton of work. It's an absolute shitload of work, but I was obsessive. And I would just like, 
is a great education because it was just like people would suggest like, oh, you should do product market fit. I was like, oh, okay. Like that's not a topic in an MBA course. There's a course on it, but like there's a bunch of good content about it or like, you should do network effects. So I ended up doing all the competitive advantages. I ended up doing all the sort of operational challenges like hiring and firing and things like that. And it was a great way to learn. It was a great way to learn to write, learn to publish, learn to meet people. Like I had all the kinds of really interesting people just like sent, I did this all through email. So it's like, People really interested. People were just replying with sometimes with just a link, sometimes with like four paragraphs of like, hey, I was a consultant at, at TCG and here's all the stuff I learned and here's a proprietary deck and you can't share the deck, but like maybe you can write the different things about like what I learned from it. It's like, oh, cool. Mm. So it was a really, it turned out to be a great education, but I was just kind of making it up as I went along. That was the first thing. I mean, that email list probably got to like 10,000, 15,000 people um, before I like, I kind of burned out and kind of like tried to turn it into a software product, which like I didn't never really have the resources or time to build to like make the leap into turning it into a platform. And I should have literally just kept writing that newsletter as it is. And it would be a million person newsletter today, or I should have just started a podcast based around that. And it would have been a million person podcast today. And I'm a little mad at myself for not doing that, but also yeah. the like kind of stepping back from that or the, the failure to continue that or the failure to make a leap on that is actually what like made the space for the Almanac and Naval and then which became then the Anthology of Ology and everything that came out of that. So it, no regrets other than like, I was, I was early to the newsletter game and then like stopped. And it wasn't obvious at that point that I was early to the newsletter game and that there was like, you know, what became James Clear's newsletter and Shane Parrish's newsletter and Lenny Rakitsky's and like all of these newsletters that were like, oh my God, Ben Thompson, like that's a huge bit. Like I was in that starting cohort, but just didn't mm. stick with it for 10 years. And it's so interesting to look at that. And again, I'm not like, I have forgiven myself and I understand it, but it is a great lesson in like, you're probably earlier than you think and the payoffs of persistence are higher than you think. Um, and so I saw, I saw traction, like it went from 15 people to 15,000 people, but it wasn't as clear to me, maybe as it was to other people that like, you know, there's two more orders of magnitude there, keep going. But it was a great experience and it showed me that, you know, if you put your heart and soul into a quality product and put it out there and keep at it and do it for yourself first and foremost, like the audience will appear and great second and third order effects will come out of that discipline. So a couple of, of follow-ups on the earlier pieces. So when you said that you had like joined hackathons and stuff like that early on, so you were a computer science major then in undergrad. Is that, is that right? No, I can't code for shit at all. <laughs> okay. Um, I have tried, I've tried to learn multiple times just like on my own. Um, and I have never gotten traction yet. I wish I knew. I wish I'd studied computer science. I was I was just going. Um, these were startup weekends, and you could go as a designer or as like an operations person or as an engineer. And the the teams were sort of self organizing. Um, and I learned a lot. That was the first place I got to actually like work with developers and like see how developers and designers work together in front and back and work together. And it was a great little like laboratory for me. I learned so much in those weekends. But uh, no, I was never. I was never technical, but I don't think you have to be technical necessarily to go to them. Yep. Yep. And the 30 or so, I guess they were like self-imposed like courses that you had based on topics. It was just like, Hey, there's an interesting topic. I don't know a lot about it, but I think it would be good to understand this. I'm just going to digest as much content as possible and then synthesize it as a summary for other people to, to enjoy. Is that, is that what that was? 
Yeah, and they're they're all still on my blog on ejorgensen.com. I just migrated it from Evergreen uh, uh, over. Um, they're all still on there. They're all still getting traffic. Like I think they're all still useful. I still reference them. Um, so you know, some of our topics that like interviewing, I was like, yeah, we all still need to know about interviewing. You know, network effects was a really popular one. Flywheels was a really popular one. There's one, there's some on storytelling that's just kind of like people would make an offhanded remark to me about like, oh, this is a really important topic and I haven't seen a good post on it. And I'll be like, oh, okay, well, that's my next one. But yeah, I was, I was buying books. I was, you know, and skimming them, just giving them like a one hour read or looking specifically for the things that I knew I needed, hunting down blog posts. And again, you know, I had, by the end, I had 10,000 people and I would say like, you know, the topic of this week is storytelling. Please send me the best thing you've ever seen, watched, read, listened to, or heard of on storytelling. Sometimes it's a book, sometimes it's a talk, sometimes it's a podcast. And I would try to consume all of it that I could, pull out the nuggets, find what was sort of self-reinforcing of like, man, I've heard this five times, or I heard this and I've heard this, and I'm actually not sure which one is right, but there's these two contrasting ideas. Um, a lot of times I ended with open questions that sometimes became other posts or just became like, hey, if you can answer this question for me, that'd be awesome. Like it was just learning in public. I mean, like, here's what I think I see. And I tried to make connections between, you know, other stuff that I'd read and listened to and watched. And, you know, there's, there's like, there's probably a Munker quote, Charlie Munger quote in like half of those posts. Cause I, fortunately Almanac is like my favorite book. Um, so there's all kinds of things that just emerged, but that was the root ball that grew a lot of stuff like that. That blog is how I initially got connected with Tucker Max, who is the founder of the company that I now have become CEO of. Like he, and that's how we got connected on Twitter. And then he was watching when I sort of tweeted that I had the first manuscript for the Naval book that he then helped publish. It's just all these things that I like in the moment, I was just kind of like, oh, cool. Like I'm Tucker Max, I've been reading his books and blogs for a long time. Like he was reading that post as he was like building the company culture for scribe and like writing the culture Bible. And it just like the conversations that it led to were in the moment, I was just like, Oh, this is cool and exciting. And how could this be happening? But it's so funny, even now, another 10 years later, eight or whatever, to be like, see what even the next and the next snowball roll from, from that early blogging that like nobody even really knows happened anymore. But like, it's still in the middle of that rolling snowball, you know, and I'm only in my thirties. Like we, I think we got a lot more roles to go, but I do feel very lucky that I started early. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting to follow somebody's career path and then see as they have these incremental insights that really like change how they operate in the world. And one of the ones that I've had probably within the past, like a year and a half is social media in general, because I guess, I guess kind of where I'm at right now is it seems like technology can either enslave you or it can serve you. And I feel like most of the world, it, technology, unfortunately, enslaves them. Um, but for a small segment of, of the population, it is like the greatest thing ever. And as technology continues to develop, it's just going to become this more and more powerful tool. And for the longest time, I thought that social media was a distraction. And I think for a lot of people it is. And for myself, it was. And so I was like, I need to stay away and focus only on just like long form content, books, podcasts, and just learn in isolation and continue to develop my skill set. But then within the past year, as I have like started to share on, on Twitter, there's something unique about like Twitter's algorithm where it's like based on the people you're following and the people that are following you, it like feeds you more of the people that 
uh, you know, are interested in this stuff that you're interested in. And so now it's just like unlocking this whole new game. And one of the very interesting things is like, I'm interviewing you and like, there's this wall that I had before of like, okay, these are big, successful people. Um, and they're doing amazing things. And like, I'm over here on this other side of the wall, but then it's like, okay, now I'm, I'm interviewing Eric Jorgensen who like wrote these books that I'm, I'm aware of. And he was on like Chris Williamson's podcast, modern wisdom that I'm like a big fan of. Right. And it, it slowly breaks down that wall and everything becomes like a lot more gray. I guess all this is to say is like, there's, there's this weird like transformation in life that you go through and you begin to see like what the other side of the world looks like um, from what it looked so different only like a year or two ago. And it's just a fascinating observation for me to like reflect on over the course of the last two years. Yeah. There's a lot of, um, I, I liked a lot of what you said there. Uh, there's a lot of different directions to go. I think, I think it's a really useful thing to realize and, and the sooner you realize it, the better that like everybody's just people like the people who think they're not just people are people you don't want to be around anyway. Like um, there are some exceptions probably in the like you literally get to people who are like billionaires or have millions of followers who just like can't interact with strangers in the in the way like normal people can for either practical or like safety reasons or whatever where it's like you just have to go through an assistant or two to get them and like they are unable to move through the world in a normal way but 99.99999% of people even the ones that you perceive to be on another side are just just people and are probably going to reply to like a good cold email or cold dm or an offer to help or something like that if you're thoughtful about what you ask and who you approach and the time that you request of them or something like that that's a really useful thing to to realize uh, to just not get too don't create a gap where where one doesn't exist um and i think i don't know i agree with with twitter man i don't know how much has changed from like the 2010 days where it really felt like a much smaller community it felt a little easier to just like engage with your little tribe yeah i wrestle with this because i've gotten so much good from twitter but i also know that like no algo is making you into who you want to be like it's it's serving the basest part of your psychology and just like trying to keep you addicted and it's true of youtube it's true of twitter it's true of netflix it's true like you have to really like set those boundaries for yourself and figure out how to use, make the technology work for you. Um, you know, like I have, I don't have Twitter on my phone, but I have a thing that lets me post to Twitter on my phone. Or sometimes mm -hmm. I just like keep notes and then I'll go very intentionally, like spend 20 minutes and go through my notes and schedule posts for a day. But like, if I have Twitter on my phone, I'll spend two hours looking at my phone, like with it hijacking my limbic system and like accomplish very little. But I spend 20 or 30 minutes looking at my replies and messages and things people send me and like that's actually really high signal um maybe it's a little more for me because i've actually kind of like built that filtering system and that network to an extent so i don't know if that works if you're like starting from a smaller number of followings or a new twitter account but yeah find a way to make it work for you and don't let it just like suck you down the whirlpool because everything is just trying to like yeah monetize your brain and make you a slightly worse version of yourself um it's incumbent on you to to set those limits when you were like 
writing even for your your own personal blog or you like assembled these like personal courses that you where you'd synthesize ideas on specific topics did mm -hmm. the idea of eventually writing a book ever come to mind or like how did that bridge happen from from you doing personal work and then ultimately writing the the almanac of Naval? I, I literally never thought I would write a book um I, I the almanac of all happened so hilariously bizarrely i tweeted i i so okay the beginning of the story is naval somebody that the first like real badass i met in life was like go read everything on paul graham's blog and go read everything on naval and nivy's blog venture hacks and like you will that is your 101 course on silicon valley and you will understand startups you'll understand vc you'll understand the valley like those are high signal places like go read everything there and i was like okay I went and read everything there. And I was like, those were all really good. <laughs> but that was where I started following Naval. And so I followed him for 10 years or so, like all the way through his creation of AngelList and a bunch of investments that he'd made. I followed him on Twitter, listened to talks, some podcasts. But he's, you know, not super well followed through this period of time. And it was his podcast on the Knowledge Project, which is, in my opinion, has to be one of the top five podcast episodes of all time. I listened to it probably three times in a week. And I was like, every single time I got something new and life-changingly amazing of just like a timeless idea that I immediately wanted to implement. I, I was just, I was the guy like, I was listening to it at the gym and I would just like put the weights down and just like sit there and stare at the wall while I like thought about all the implications of this new thing that I had just heard. And I, it just struck me how sad it was that like this timeless wisdom that just had probably just changed my life was stuck in this unsearchable ephemeral format in one podcast in the subculture of podcasting that is getting really big, but is still to the rest of the world, pretty small, certainly compared to books, which are, you know, thousands of years old and universal and in all the languages and et cetera, et cetera. So I was just like, man, it's breaks my heart that all this stuff is like stuck here and on Twitter, which is where Naval's main lessons had been shared. And I just, I think so highly of him as a synthesizer and as a signal for wisdom and as a voice and a thinker and a distiller of, you know, all of the study that he's done through science, through technology, through philosophy. I, he, he really has a gift for filtering and rephrasing and making things memorable. I'd learned a lot from him. And I had th this all this time I'd spent on the Evergreen blog was in the ethos of like curation and finding timeless resources and preserving them. And I, I the platform that I wanted to eventually build was imagine Hacker News, but like filtered by quality, not recency. Like the whole internet is based on recency, right? It's all what happened today. What was the most recent thing posted? What are all the top upvotes on Reddit? Like it's all constantly changing. And I wanted a place to go where I was like, no, what's literally the best thing ever written on hiring? What's the top 10? Like, how can I learn most effectively, not just see whatever got posted most recently? So that was the ethos behind Evergreen. And I carried that ethos over to, to the Naval book. I was like, man, these lessons are incredible. Like, I don't want them to only exist in this ephemeral platform. And so I tweeted this random idea. I was like, what if I created like the book of knowledge and I made some transcripts and some tweets and just like threw it together and put it on Amazon. And I just went to bed. I like, tweeted it and went to bed and didn't think about it again. And I woke up and Naval had retweeted it and 5,000 people were like, oh my God, yes, please do it. Like that would be amazing. And Naval himself is like, I'm happy to provide whatever you need. And I was like, oh, 
okay, I guess I got a, I got a job to do here. Like, and so I immediately was like, oh, okay, I'm no longer like throwing a thing together. Like now I'm writing poor Charlie's Almanac for Naval. And the, or the first versions of this book, dude, I, I found every single public thing resource he'd ever done. I compiled all of them and I categorized everything. It's like hundreds and hundreds of pages of dozens of categories of all this stuff. And I like presented it to some friends. I was like, here's the first version. Like, what do you think? And they're like, dude, it is too long. <laughs> <laughs> but I wasn't even sure it was going to be a book. I was just kind of like trying to capture all this wisdom. Um, I was like, maybe it needs to be like a live updated blog. Maybe it needs to be like a membership access. Like what? And, you know, I was just like, I don't know. I was overthinking it and putting like touch tech brain on it and trying to think of a platform. It was, it was dumb. And my friend Trevor McKendrick just like verbally slapped me and was like, dude, it's like, stop. It's a book. It's a book. It's a book. It's a book. Just write the book, finish the book. That like helped me make a lot of really clear decisions about it. And I really thought I was just doing a service for Naval fans. Like I had no concept that it would be as big as it is. All I knew, my only bar was like, I want Naval to be proud of this book. Like he's, he's, I have an audience of myself and him. And if I do write by those two people, if it's interesting to me and useful to me and something that he is thinks is good enough to accept having his name on and like worthy of his other work, then I will be proud of the work that I've done. And that's all it takes. Like, I am not a perfectionist by nature, but like once I established that context for this project, I became a perfectionist about this project. I cannot tell you how many times I reread that, like every page of that book and every idea and sanded and polished and sanded and polished and agonized over decisions like on a per sentence level to be sure that it was something that we both, Naval and I would be proud to have our names on that could live on for decades. And it turns out, I think that that is really a great heuristic. Like, you know, you hear Rick Rubin say the same thing about music. Like if you make it for yourself, honestly and intensely, you are actually doing the best thing for the audience too. And I didn't know that at the time. I was just kind of following my intuition of like, this lets me, this shows me how to make good decisions and move forward. But yeah, and then I mean, I was just fumbling my way forward through a book writing process. I, you know, just building it all in Google Docs, trying to make something that worked, printing it out periodically and reading and going back and forth between physical and digital. And then I tweeted that I thought I had a completed manuscript and Tucker Max was like, yo, good thing you know me and I run a publishing company who can help you publish this thing. Um, and I was like, oh yeah, I do. Um, so we got on a call and he was like, here's what you need to do. And Scribe would love to help. And so Scribe ended up helping me publish the Almanac and Naval, which is, I think, also a huge part of why it's been so successful. It's just the the quality of the design and the proofreading and the polish and the, you know, all the distribution work that they did was like really made it feel like it came out of a top quality traditional publisher. And people can feel the difference between that. And I think that's also part of what like what's made it what's given it the feel of quality and credibility that has taken it to, you know millions and millions of readers. One of the special, I think, byproducts of a book like The Almanac of Duvall and a handful of others like um, Morgan Housel's Psychology of Money and maybe James Clear's Atomic Habits is one of the big issues that I find very frustrating is that if you are like an average high school student, the types of books that they give you just makes you want to hate like reading and literature. Like usually mm -hmm. they're giving you books that are like well above your pay grade and they're asking you to dissect like symbolism and like complex jargon. And it is like a very painful process. 
Uh, but like for me, I have three younger brothers or like high school, college age. And for me to give them that book and for them to be engaged with it, like they need that spark early on to just develop the habit of reading. And as they incrementally go through that process, like your love for learning grows as a, as a byproduct. And I think like that book had a huge impact on a lot of people, including myself. And now I'm reading like a book a week. And for me to think like the books, the types of books that I'm reading, if I were to read them like 10 years ago, it would have made no sense. I would have hated it, you know, but yeah. like those, those special books, like the Almanac of Naval, like get people on that path to pursuing like a life of learning. And I think yeah. that's, that's so cool. Yeah, I, I agree entirely. It is so easy to love reading when the book that you're reading has an answer that you are looking for, like, <laughs> which like Shakespeare doesn't have a lot of answers that high schoolers are looking for day to day. Like I, I understand that. And I'm like, I am now in my thirties going back and reading like some of the great books and some of the myths and the tragedies. And I'm like, kind of starting to appreciate them. I'll probably appreciate them even more in my forties, but like in my twenties, I had very immediate needs that like the answers are in books, but it's got to, you got to find the right book. And thank you. Thank you for giving it to your little brothers. Actually, my literally my favorite thing to hear is people who gift the book and gift it to younger family. Like that's the highest compliment I think a book can receive is being gifted. And especially when it's being kind of like personally passed down with like, hey, I read this and I loved it and I think it can help you. And and when they love it and it helps them and like puts them on a path to even understanding how the world works or wanting to pick up that next book or understanding what comes next, you know, Naval recommend like the last chapter of the book is Naval's recommended reading. And so there's a whole bunch of different rabbit holes you can go down based on what he says. That's exactly, that was my experience with poor Charlie's almanac in my early twenties. I read that and I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to read every book that he recommends reading. I'm going to pick up Ben Franklin's biography that by Isaacson, I'm going to pick up influence by Robert Cialdini. I'm going to like re-listen to all of Munger's talks. I'm going to read every other, like read all their shareholder letters. I'm going to read all the compilations of Buffett and Munger. Like that was a huge influence on me. And I think, you know, Naval is, that's why it's titled that way. I think Naval and his wisdom are worthy of the like Charlie Munger and Ben Franklin, like legacy of simple, clear wisdom preservation. Um, and getting on those tracks and finding even one person who you're like, I just respect this person, you know, even 90% 90, 90 of them as a thinker and as someone to emulate and as someone to trust intellectually to like kind of guide you towards the right sources can really save a lot of, save a lot of time and give you, anchor you in the world in a really, really helpful way. If you could find somebody like that early in life, to me, that was Munger. And then it's become Naval. Yeah, I, I can't, I'm so uh, you know, I picked up Charlie Munger's, uh, the poor Charlie's almanac off my dad's bookshelf at like 22, or maybe he handed it to me, but either way, like that put me on rails that totally changed my life. Like a bunch of my closest friends I met through an interest of Munger by going to the Berkshire Hathaway meetings or the daily journal meeting, or just like talking about Charlie Munger online or writing about mental models. Like that became this like close knit, weird little internet group that includes like Kevin Espiritu, who's now built like the biggest gardening media you familiar with epic gardening yeah i've, I've heard of it I've, i follow dude, kevin on twitter and i'm very impressed by all the stuff that dude, he posts like kevin and i met in well i think it took us a long time to meet but we like first started talking in like 2011 or 12 when we were just like two nerds in this corner of the internet like talking about charlie munger and mental models and like there's a, i have there's a whole long list of friends that 
came through that thing. And I think, I think, you know, people like you may feel the same thing in 10 years from Naval, like the people who are attracted to these messages and really embody them and learn to live along them are going to be on a totally different trajectory. And those of you who started appreciating them together and early and supporting each other will like be bonded by some of those principles and those values. And it'll be amazing in, you know, 10 or 15 years where everybody ends up. Can I ask you a little bit about that, uh, the Charlie Munger kind of Warren Buffett value investing ecosystem? Because I am early on, probably five or six years ago, was drawn to a lot of podcasts and communities in that ecosystem. And I think what I had maybe realized like more recently was that even though and I still need to do a full comprehensive um, like review of a, a lot of their shareholder letters and all of that stuff. But what I had realized was that there were some things that they were saying that I wholeheartedly agree with. And then there were some things where they would either be hesitant to comment on or specifically when it becomes, you know, anything related to like Bitcoin or crypto and it's just a, a weird a weird situation where you have these guys and you think that they tackle almost all the problems in the world with like complete intellectual honesty um but that seeing seeing some like pushback and i realize there are tribal instincts like in every area of the world whether it's like in crypto or otherwise um but like what what is your sentiment been overall just in like being a part of that like value investing ecosystem being fans of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and then um like also anything that you just like maybe disagree with their their approaches or takes on yeah i i think you know, I don't adopt anybody's like worldview wholesale, and I don't think anybody should, you know, whether it's a political party or a person, um, you, know, you you should always find something to disagree with somebody on. Buffett and Munger, I think, so I am more of a Munger guy than a Buffett guy, partly because I'm more of a generalist. Uh, you know, Munger's a really true generalist, um, and we can go into that. I think it's really interesting. I don't, I admire Buffett as sort of a craftsman of investing but i don't actually like it's a weird thing to say and like i do spend time investing but like investing is not like a like it's not like a noble calling like people do it because they think it's a great way to get rich but it's like actually a really boring kind of useless way to live your life like the people who spend their whole lives trying to figure out how to like bet on horses like it's more useful than horse betting but like not by a lot and I, my taste has changed on this slightly to just really, really, really favor. Um, like, I think there's something so much more honorable in build, in being like a builder, a scientist, an engineer, a practitioner than there is in being like a capital allocator. The capital allocation is important. I do some of it personally. I do some of it professionally. But like, like we should be a little embarrassed to be like grown ass men or women spending our whole lives like reading financial statements and like shifting numbers around and like when our forefathers like built bridges and built countries and built skyscrapers and like invented things like let's go build some shit build a nuclear reactor cure cancer prevent it like it, there's just better things to do than spend your life as an investor uh, on bitcoin and crypto specifically I was a little disappointed that they didn't, basically that they didn't just put it in the too hard pile, you know, like that they didn't say, hey, this is not my area of expertise. I don't have an opinion. 
I also acknowledge like Warren Buffett is the CEO and very public face of like one of the biggest corporations on the planet. And anybody in that situation really loses the ability to speak freely on their personal values mm -hmm. to some extent. And he is open about, it. he has said like, there are things that I just, that I have personal beliefs about that I cannot address because of my position, because it'll have a negative impact on my employees and my executives and my shareholders. And it's just not worth it. Yep. And an inter interesting comparison is actually the Koch brothers who are a little less well-known than Buffett, but like have built a really incredible business also in the Midwest, also long-term compounding, also a mix of kind of like capital allocators and business builders, but they're really active in politics. And because of that, they are vilified by one side or the other or both. And I I listened to a long form interview they did on um, Tim Ferriss and I was just struck by like, man, this is, this is the reputation that Buffett would have if he got involved in politics. And this is why he so assiduously avoids some of those kind of scissor statements that really like tend to split people. So Buffett and Munger have never been tech people and that's okay. I think it's hilarious that like Bill Gates is his best friend and he still didn't invest in Microsoft, even it was like very obviously like became a great investment mm. and Google. And he, they've said similar things. I think it was pretty, I think it was like 2020, 2019 when Buffett was like, in retrospect, we should have, or we were capable of seeing how good of a business Google was in 2005 or what seven or whenever it sort of went public, or at least was, had been public for a few years. He's like, that was within our powers to, you know, I know we're not tech people, but like that was a learnable thing that we didn't do, but they have never really been clear, near the edge on that. So I'm not surprised by their crypto stance. They are also, if they, the cynical view is if they perceived it to be a threat to the dollar, then of course they're going to attack it, not support it. Um, I don't know if that's true or if they had a slightly, just a view that they're like, this is gambling and Munger especially like does not approve of any form of gambling. He's like, this is, you know, antisocial. And if it's like both gambling and unregulated and that's how he perceived it, then of course he's just going to be like, yeah, no, that should not be a thing that's like allowed because it's not good for anybody. But, you know, I doubt that they had read, you know, the network state or Balaji's book or, or ever really had the, the set of mental models about projecting decades forward and, believing in decentralized power they have addressed it a little more more recently in some greater detail but yeah i agree with you but i also think it's fine to disagree with them on stuff and that's and that's good so i think uh, it, part of what i appreciate about naval is that he is like has a lot of the charlie munger ethos and the mental models but also is enough of a futurist and a technologist and a builder and a founder himself to be a little closer to my like my value system about like no technology moves the world forward and it's very good and it's a moral imperative to invest in it and to build it and to support new technology and to not let regulation get in the way of it and to resist anybody who's performing any sort of regulatory capture and using the government to limit you know the power of a new startup to disrupt like we should all be rooting for whoever the next, like uh, the next contender is, the next disruptor, because that's what keeps capitalism competitive and our goods and services cheap. And it's tough to remember that sometimes, but that's the way the world tends to work. With with your latest book, the anthology of Balaji. So Balaji's a remarkable mind in his own right, but he's the type of guy where if you give him a microphone and an hour, he could like spit out an entire textbook in one sitting. He's, the... he's like that in person too, by the way. Like if you just like are on a phone call with him, like if yeah. he just like calls you, it's exactly the same. It's so <laughs> hilarious. 
So, I mean, to that to that point, like the experience of putting together a book for biology compared to Naval must have been like quite different. Like what were what were some of the challenges or like even mapping out the entire process? Was it the same approach of I've got all this content from podcasts, um, you know, prior writings that they have published and all that stuff. And it's it's the same process in that regard. I just imagine the volume is like a, a, an insane amount. Yeah. The the volume was different for sure. Naval is a very natural sort of synthesizer and distiller. Like he's already he's already really tight, and it was really a matter of finding the seams between everything and connecting them. Um, Balaji is a very like linear thinker, I think. So a lot of the dots are connected for him already. But there's the filtering mechanism had to be a lot stronger. He also spends a lot more time talking about contemporary issues, which is not what I try to in books. You know, I, I want this book to be as useful in 10 years or 20 years or 50 years as it is today and as applicable. And I think that's certainly true of the Naval book. I think it's true of the, of the biology book, though some of the examples, you know, by 50 years, hopefully we have some technologies. We already have some technologies that biology says are coming, you know, <laughs> like, but it's definitely a, it was a little bit, it was probably a 60, 70% similar process. And it was nice to be going through it for the second time and just know where the finish line was. You know, the, the second book mentally and emotionally was a lot easier than the first book, just because I knew I'd been through the maze before and I bumped off you know, a few fewer walls on my way through the second time. Just knowing vaguely what the next step was going to be and what the final product looked like is really, really helpful. With the... I guess being like an author now and also your role as CEO of Scribe, like what advice do you generally give to people who are like considering writing a book? Because it seems like there are pretty polar opposite views on on writing a book. And it seems like even the definition of a book over time, because of the amount of frictions that there have been historically in getting a book published compared to now. And I, I know Scribe is like at the forefront of this, of like, it's mm -hmm. a lot easier than it was before to gain access to an audience base and, and distribute and promote your book. Like what, what do you generally give like recommendations on people thinking through like, should I write a book or not? Yeah. I, I, there are many Ted talks that I could give on this. Um, <laughs> and I have spent many hours with, with friends and strangers, just like, giving different versions of this because it's, it's truly different for everybody. It's different depending on your life context and how much time and how much effort and what your story is and what you most importantly, maybe what you're expecting the book to do for you. I generally think almost everyone could benefit from writing a book and has a great story to tell and has an audience that could benefit from whatever knowledge is in them. I think we, we all could learn something from almost everyone on the planet. And there are many people who are underrepresented as as authors and many viewpoints that are. And the more of those stories we can tell and the better we can get at getting those books into the right hands, the better the world will be. Like that's a thing I fundamentally believe. That said, there are probably, there are definitely good and bad times, good and bad ways and good and bad motivations for writing your book. Not bad in the sense that like you shouldn't do it, just bad in the sense of like, you are less likely to succeed if this is, you know, if you choose a poor timing and motivation and method for you. So a lot of the conversations are just around like understanding that and trying to align the right, the right person with the right topic, with the right method of writing, with the right goal that they're trying to achieve in their life. And there's a lot of different ways we can go through it. You know, ascribe like if you have already written a book and you bring it to us, we can help you publish it. If you want to write a book, but you really don't want it to suck and you don't want to waste time along the way, we will have a 
like a method and a private coach for guiding you through the writing process. If you have a lot more money than you have time, but you have valuable wisdom inside you and you're like, I don't need to have my fingers on the keys. I don't need to feel like an author, but I need a book with full of my ideas in my voice to be created. We will do really a combination of like positioning and structuring and ghostwriting and guiding and interviewing and like pull that book out of you in this very sort of methodical creative process really like with with partners and then that feeds right into our publishing process and so that takes about a year but it only takes like 50 or 100 hours of the author's time and we just like really build a team around them and enshrine their expertise or their story or their motivation or their journey in this book that they can then use to accomplish whatever they want to in the world whether that's impact or business impact or just go sell some books there is a lot of interesting stuff we can do and there's a there's a long list of potential opportunities around marketing and you could really come and spend like hundreds of thousands of dollars without wasting money if you really wanted to go for like max impact mm. but that's overkill for almost everybody makes sense makes sense and i guess like in terms of your goals for 2024 as it pertains to scribe and like the the degree to which you've been involved um you started in, in august is that right yeah Okay. And I guess like in terms of what your expectations were coming in and then like being in the midst of it, I feel like with any company that you work for, it's always like, it's different when you're in, in the guts of the company, managing and interacting with people. Like how, how has the experience been so far? What have been like uh, early, early pain points or things like that you're looking forward to like uh, improving on in 2024? Yeah, it was a tough start just because of the situation that we were coming out of, which is like its own whole long story, but like Scribe had a rough, uh, rough summer and the prior leadership made some pretty serious, pretty serious mistakes that really left like a forest fire situation um, that myself and others and many on the team sort of stepped into to kind of do their best to fix. Um, but it's a situation where like you cannot fix everything that burned down in a forest fire. You, you have to just take some losses and, do your best to to move forward with what you have. So it was a tough start from that context, but it got like dawn came much quicker even than we were prepared than we were expecting it to. Like we were prepared to slog it out for a long time and due to a combination I think of a lot of really hard work by an excellent team that remained there and a lot of grace from authors who understood the situation and had had great experiences with individuals on the team and the sort of good karma that Scribe had accrued over the last 10 years, largely due to, you know, Tucker and Zach and building that company and helping the thousands of authors that they helped. And, you know, we published 2000 books and touched a lot of lives along the way and gave away a lot of their expertise, you know, through blog posts and books. And there's like a free course on how to write and publish your own book on our website still. Like, a lot of goodwill had been created. And I think that really was a tailwind for us in like helping us kind of build back quickly. So as we talk in January now of 2024, like we largely feels like we are strongly on the mend and on the comeback and like going to have a great year to a surprising extent, given, you know, where, where we came from. And that's, yeah, that's a credit to the foundation that Tucker and Zach built to credit to every hardworking person on the scribe team and their patience and their persistence and to a lot of authors for trusting that we would take care of them and being willing to kind of carry forward with us out of a, out of a tough situation uh, last summer. So 
we're I'm writing a whole big long post on it and it's probably outside the scope of this to tell the whole like story but it's a really fascinating thing to see just as a business case and i'm grateful that i get a chance to kind of return the favor of like like i feel like scribe changed my life like tucker personally helping me publish that book and scribe helping me turn a google google doc into this book that has now reached millions and millions of people in 40 languages was like portal that absolutely changed my life and is directly responsible in my mind for all the good things that have come after it, whether that's the anthology of biology, whether that's the small venture fund that I started to invest in early stage tech companies, whether it's being here on this podcast, talking to you, whether that's whatever books come next or being CEO of Scribe itself, like all of it came from that experience. And it's really rewarding now to be in a position where I can help pull other authors through that or other potential authors through that, or talk to people about their books. And I, I love books, like stacks of them all over my apartment. Like I am who I am because we are a reading family and a bunch of great authors took time to put their thoughts down and I got to read them for $20. And like, but I feel like it's a sacred process and it's really fun to like get to contribute to it and help other people achieve that dream of building a book or using a book to help grow their business or impact their, you know, their chosen cause, whatever it is. I mean, even just to come full circle on the discussion of, you know, being a capital allocator is not the most like admirable, um, like uh, professions out there, but to like follow the track that you've had of like, you wrote a book, you interacted with Scribe Media early on, it changed your life. And now for you to come back and, uh, and try and change like the course of the organization and also work on something that you're incredibly passionate about, like you must feel incredibly like privileged and lucky, but also like super fulfilled and that you're working on something that is like, um, beyond the financials or whatever is like uh, super yeah. special. Yeah. It's a really fun, it's a really fun thing. It's a fun industry to work in. It's a really rewarding, um, you know, this is a thing that's like on a lot of people's bucket lists. Like how cool is it to get to help people check an item off their bucket list, like hold their book for the first time. And for a lot of people, it's a really emotional journey to like revisit some of their really painful formative memories or most, you know, darkest days, hardest challenges that they overcame. A lot of times that's the story that they're sharing. And I I mean, the, the number of sort, you know, we have an author right now who's like, his wife's his wife has passed away and her last wish was like i have a manuscript like please get it published and like we're helping him publish that and it, like there's a lot of stories um are like that that it just like the whole team rallies around and feels so good about being able to do that kind of work and serve that cause with the book publishing industry like just in general so one of the i guess like a couple of great books that I read recently was like The Sovereign Individual and um, and also Chris Anderson's book, The Long Tail. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems like if you look at the course of history, there are periods of centralization and then periods of decentralization. Very much yep. feels like from everything that I see, we're in a period of decentralization, like with the traditional publishing houses and like the, I guess, any hold that they have on the industry, like five yep. years from now, 10 years from now, could you very well see like, no publisher or no no books going through traditional publishers or do you think that there will like always be some use case for going through like traditional publishers do, do you have any views there yeah i have, I have many views there i think this <laughs> is a really this is a really interesting uh thing to think about and it's 
it's really fascinating because I think we're living in one of those shifts. And it's so cool to look back through, like I love business history. So you look back at like when these publishers were created and the context that they were created in and the business model that was developed in that context. And so the assumption of traditional publishers business model relies on a few things. Um, and I think they're in the middle of this innovator's dilemma where like they can't change their business model, but their business model doesn't really suit the future. So the things that I see that are like the context that they come from, right, is a hundred years ago, 150 years ago, which a lot of the publishers are proudly like, we're a 150 year old publisher is like, yes, yes, but <laughs> let's examine that. So the context they were born into was books were only sold through bookstores. One, two, you needed a huge upfront capital investment in a big print run of books in order to get any books created at all in the first place. And then you needed the distribution network to get them into the bookstores where they could be bought. So that's all the printing and distribution and capital requirements. There's also really centralized media in that era. So you needed close connections. You need to be in the New York Cool Kids Club to have connections with book editors who would write reviews or columns or whatever to get the word out on your book or even like get a spot on the late show. So like getting into magazines, it was centralized media. And so you needed all those to even drive the demand for the book. And then you needed the capital and distribution and that connections to get into a bookstore. Now, all of that is basically inverted. Anybody can publish a book on Amazon in a weekend if you want to, if you want to just do digital only. Physical books are created mostly print on demand. So there's no longer a huge capital requirement for tying up a bunch of money in books. You don't need necessarily to do the storage and the fulfillment and handle that overhead if you don't want to, you can do print on demand. Third, 90% of books are sold on Amazon. So you no longer actually require bookstore distribution to have a hit. Like I'm sure my book is in some bookstores. I don't know which ones, but I've still sold a million copies without having any like super inside books, book knowledge about how to get those books, bookstores to stock my book. It's in there, but it's sort of self-serve, not proactive distribution that I had any connections with. The final one media wise, I don't think anybody's like skimming the New York times bestseller list and just buying whatever's on there anymore. Like centralized media drives book sales to a much, much lower extent than creators. At the high end, it's somebody like Reese Witherspoon or Oprah with a book club. But in my experience, it's much more peer-to-peer -peer book recommendations. People like you who post about it on Twitter, give it to their family, smaller book influencers. It is a, it is a bottoms up decentralized, like if people buy the book and read it and love it, they will recommend it. And if somebody like, how do you decide what books to read? I decide what books to read based on what my most trustworthy friends recommend to me. That's basically how most people do it. Buying yeah. a book and reading it is a big commitment. Like it's not, you know, it's $20, but it's 10 hours of your life. And there's something to that having really changed that people just haven't acknowledged. And I think, you know, look, I don't think traditional publishers are going to collapse to your, to like the second half of your question. Like there's a huge amount of momentum and prestige and, Authors are still choosing that for a variety of reasons. Some I think are rational. Some I think are irrational. Some are maybe emotionally rational or credibility rational, which are d different debates. But I think it's a lot like the universities where like some of the lower down ones will die. The culture and the credibility and the prestige associated with them will keep many of them alive and keep that path pretty well trod, I think, by a lot of people actually who aren't just as forward thinking. But I do think Scribe and other publishers kind of in our ilk or with similar models will grow tremendously. And at least one 
I believe Scribe will be one of these. And this is my goal is to like, we'll grow the scale to, to really like go toe to toe with these traditional publishers. So I think we will see in the same way that you saw like Lambda School, Bloom Tech or trade schools or whatever, like really rise to be a very savvy and well-trod and very big business alternative path to universities. I think those are continuing to grow. I think these are roughly analogous. Um, and I think these trends have long ways to go. So I think Scribe is going to continue to grow for a long time. And I see, you know, I'm not, I didn't join because I'm like, oh my God, like cool small business. I'm like, oh no, I, I have like, I think there's a really solid and big and useful business to build here that will be a very useful contrast to kind of all the typical assumptions, all the typical offerings and all the typical things that come with traditional publishing. Like we are the opposite of all of that, right? A traditional publisher, most people don't realize it takes like 85% of your royalties and full creative control. So basically, before you even write the book, an author by taking an advance of $50,000, $100,000 for a first-time author, like that's not out of the question, is basically giving up full control and 90% of their equity. And they paid an agent to help them do that. So like they, they come out with 8% of this thing that they're the secret sauce of that they haven't even done work yet. And they, and they gave it up. And so now they have this very lazy majority partner who's relying on this portfolio effects. And they're expected to still be the CEO of the book, but they're making pennies on the dollar for what they would be making. And so they give up on pushing on the book and making it all it could because they have this partner who's still taking most of the economics. And what I see coming out of the self-publishing world is people who are really, I, I like the phrase, CEO of the book. Um, and I think I stole that from Jim O'Shaughnessy maybe. But I see it more and more, and I think it's an apt description because when you see someone who's actually fully accountable and earns 100% of the royalties from their book, they treat it very differently. They put more effort into it. They don't give up on marketing it after three months of a failed launch. You know, like There's a lot of creative things that authors can do. And they, there's a lot of ways they can use their book to build their business or build their reputation or build other businesses, Or, but you lose those freedoms if you have this majority partner who makes all the creative final decisions, only cares about book sales, and gets most of the royalties. And to me, that's a model that's quite outdated, but I think it'll take a while for that to become obvious to everybody in the space, but increasing, especially for creators. You know, like if you're a creator with 50,000 followers, even let alone 500,000, and you're writing a book and you've been talking to this audience every day for five years, you know exactly who's going to buy this book. You know exactly what you're going to put in the book. You know, they're going to love to read the book and you know, you're going to sell a hundred thousand copies. Why are you giving up 90% to a publisher? Like, do you know how much it actually costs to publish a book? It's like $20,000. It's not that expensive. We charge 18. If you bring us a manuscript, we'll charge you $18,000 and you keep 100% of your rights and royalties forever and all of your creative freedoms. Like, And we will help you publish an absolutely excellent badass book that looks like it came out of a traditional publishing house. And it's all yours and you can do whatever you want with the files, whatever you want with everything in the future. If you are going to sell 100,000 copies in the first three years, that is an asset worth hundreds of thousands of dollars and you're selling 90% of it for 50 grand. That's a terrible business deal. But most authors don't, even business authors don't think of their books like an asset. They don't treat it like a business. And it's insane to me. So whatever, I'm on my soapbox. As you can <laughs> tell, it. you pulled the string of my TED talk. Um, <laughs> and I think you knew you were doing it. But I think it's going to be a really interesting thing. So long story short, I don't think traditional publishing is going to die. I don't think it should die. I think there's a lot of people who need an advance to write a book. I think there's a lot of people who are well served by traditional publishing. But I think there's a lot more who could really benefit from looking at a professional publisher uh, like Scribe or something else in, in this model. And 
you know, I, I've, I have aspirations for Scribe to become the biggest book publisher and the best book marketers in the world. I'm six months in, so you can call me naive for that, but like that's the path we're marching and I'm excited to, to see how far we can get. Well, I asked because I am deeply curious just about the space and like how it fits in with the broader ecosystem of like this creator economy. Because even like yesterday, I was scrolling through the uh, the feeds that I follow. And I was like unfollowing anything that was like institution or organization because ultimately like I care about like other people, like other people that I trust. Right. And yep. it seems like a very healthy kind of maturation process where the trust is going to like its original source, which is like people. Yeah. And that is like a very cool thing. And it's also very cool, like on the marketing side of things to see people advocate for certain products. Like there was, um, I don't know if you listen to Rick Rubin's podcast, Tetragrammaton or whatever, Dude. but his ads are incredible. Like, I love I, his I don't ads. Know I love his podcast. I just yeah. discovered, I listened to the John Mayer episode first, probably two weeks ago. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to listen to every episode of this podcast. It's so like, Rick is brilliant, but he does a great job with that podcast. That episode with John Mayer was a masterclass in creativity. I absolutely loved it. Yeah. And I've been through a few more of them now. I got a bunch more queued up. Yeah. He's the yeah. man. But I mean, even even with myself, it's like if I if I buy or test out a product based on a creator that like recommended it and then it falls flat on its face, it like it, it forces some accountability on the person that you know recommended it. And I think that's like a super healthy thing. I mean, even with the whole I don't know, you probably remember the whole like BlockFi situation uh, with crypto. Like I yeah. had invested some of my assets in BlockFi because of people that, you know, had advocated yeah. like, hey, this is this is a solid platform, you know? And so now I know like, okay, I need to be more careful about like how much do I think this person really understands like what's going on? And even for myself, like how much due diligence am I going to be doing um, on certain products? And I think that's like a, an amazing thing for, for society in general. And I feel like yeah. Scribe is going to benefit from like the evolution that's taking place here. Yeah, I think so. I think there's a really, I think we have a very interesting way to work with creators, both when creators want to become authors, because I think it that tends to be a step function in in a lot of people's careers. You know, a lot of people have the perception that like you become a really big success and then you write a book. But if you actually like track people's career paths, a lot of times like the book preceded like the kink in the exponential curve and like became a contributor to their success. Mm. I also think, you know, book talk and bookstagram is is like a really interesting thing. And we can work with creators very interestingly as being like help connecting authors with them or like helping young creators get their first sponsor or get their first affiliate at, like with a business model like ours is really like if you refer a customer a month to us that's a few thousand dollars that we are happy to refer you and like that is a very meaningful amount to somebody who's like trying to break out of a nine to five and make it as a creator and those first sponsors or first partners or something i think are really instrumental like i have felt that as a creator myself like trying to build a podcast and being like man just like if you find the right two companies to like work with and go deep on them and work with them for years, that's a really, you can build a really good business. If you can reach an audience and you get even two partners who are businesses that are aligned with you and your audience and you're proud to support, like you don't have to go get 15 sponsors. Like I don't, I don't like that. I don't like personally operating that way. I know it's a shitload of work for creators too and ad brokers and everything in between. Like I think the people that you see that are really interested, like if you look at Tim Ferriss and Huberman and like these guys don't, they don't have 200 different sponsors. And I think that's better than like the Dax Shepard approach of like McDonald's, Bud Light, whatever. Like 
you pick a few companies that, and you go deep with them and you build trust, mutual trust and become an asset. You know, you become like one leg of their marketing stool. And that's a really, that's a big win-win partnership. And I think companies should be more open to that. We are certainly open to that at Scribe. Like, and I'm lucky to have a foot in both camps and appreciate what a win-win sort of partnership can look like there. But I'm giving talks about this at finance conferences. I was like, go, you guys, like the next Susie Orman is not on TV. Like she's on YouTube and she needs you like to sponsor her stuff and help her take her production level to the next, you know, production quality to the next level. So creators should be reaching out to companies. Companies should be reaching out to creators and like finding mutual fits. I think you're, you're dead on that. Like that is the way the future is going for better, or for worse. And so like, be really careful who you trust as a brand, as a creator, you follow, like there's a lot of pitfalls out there and don't be too, don't be too eager to get that first sponsorship tech check and compromise your, you know, your credibility with your audience. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Realize we're going to run up on time, but before we, we close, I had to ask you, cause in scrolling encore. through encore <laughs> for sure, man, let's, we have to, if you're, if you're game for it, I'd love to have you back on my friend. The last, last question here is I was scrolling through your website and book number three, uh, book of Elon. Is that, is that, is that coming, coming up or what can you say at this point? I sure hope so. I am working on it. I'm okay. working on all all parts of it. Um, I don't know if it's not officially official yet, but I'm working on it. Fair enough. Fair enough. I'm very excited to follow along. Yeah, it's um, it's the same ethos, man. I mean, like I I bought and loved the Walter Isaacson biography, but it's like I don't. That's a different goal. Like the goal of that book is to like really put him into historical context and give you every detail about his life. And my goal building these books is like to take the most useful, most evergreen, most widely applicable ad life advice, most useful things these people have ever said. And in my opinion, Elon Musk is the greatest living entrepreneur. Like he will be remembered hundreds of years into the future. He has a ton of valuable wisdom to share. Most of that is lost in the like chaos of his life and all the things that people share. And there's some of it buried in the biography, but it's not all of it. And if you go back through, I've got a spreadsheet with hundreds of sources that he talks, he's given all this stuff. And I've been going through it meticulously for many months now and pulling out all the gems. And there's so it's all, you know, it's 10 or 15 years ago, but there's so many gems about company building and decision-making and hiring. And I just, I really want to pull this all into, into one place and for people to be able to access it and learn to you know, love him or hate him, you cannot deny the results that he's created. And there's something that we can all learn and apply that he, through the maelstrom of a gauntlet of pain and like achievements that he has gone through, there's something that we can learn and something that we can apply. And I hope I can pull all of his best nuggets into one place that is something that everybody can can find useful and that helps them on the, on the quest to, you know, build something or impact something like whatever their, whatever their mission is. I think there's some wisdom from Elon that can help you do it. So I'm hoping to build that book. That is like the useful guide to Elon's brain, like all the most useful things he's ever said, let's put it in some pages. Let's make it organized. Let's make it accessible. And let's give it to every, you know, millions of people around the world and see if we can't create a few more Elon Musk's this next generation that help us build this incredible abundant future. Like no reason we can't keep on the incredible trajectory we're on, but the more people who see that as a possibility and understand, you know, what goes into it, both philosophically and strategically and tactically and, you know, decision to decision, moment to moment, I think the sooner we're going to get there. If and when that happens, and even if, if it's another book that you end up publishing, um, 
would love to run another round. Uh, there are so many topics that probably could have gone down specifically on like the venture capital route and what you're doing with rolling fun. But this was, uh, this was a great deal of fun. So thanks so much for, for being a part of it. I loved it. Thank you. Look forward to the next one already. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Idea Exchange Podcast. For more information on the podcast and more information about myself, you can visit tylercho.com. I also send out a monthly newsletter to friends, family, and colleagues where I essentially share the best ideas that I came across from that month, whether it was books that I've been reading, podcasts that I've been listening to, or just conversations that I've been having. So feel free to subscribe on the homepage of my personal website. Until next time.